Why do you think anxiety and depression amongst children is increasing? Well, you're right. It clearly has. And the best and the leading uh, medical authorities from the AMA to the American Psychological Association to the CDC are telling us this. Dr. Michelle Forba, educational psychologist and author. She is an internationally renowned educator. She's an award-winning author. Her current book, by the way, is Thrivers. Dr. Michelle Borba, who is an internationally renowned educational psychologist who has published over 20 books. How do people build that self-awareness to be to identify their own triggers? You just you just mentioned the key word, self-awareness. The thing is, a lot of this stuff happens so quickly. But as soon as we say in the calm moment. So what are the seven traits that you know, built uh, successful kids? And then also, how do you define success? You know, I think uh, that's another. Well, first of all, let's go to success. I define success as a kid who's a thriver. And a thriver to me is a kid who's got a goal or whatever it is, and he just keeps on going towards it. So, you know, I'm, to be frank with you, I'm pretty concerned about the future of our children. Yeah. You know, I see yeah. some statistics like anxiety, depression is increasing amongst, you know, children and adolescents. You know, I don't think TikTok is helping with that either. The pandemic certainly didn't help that with uh, being yeah. uh, secluded and not having that social interaction at a such a important age. So why do you think it's on the rise? Like if you had to point to either one thing or multiple things, why do you think anxiety and depression amongst children is increasing? Well, you're right. It clearly has. And the best and the leading uh, medical authorities from the AMA to the American Psychological Association to the CDC are telling us this. But mm. I think the most important thing as a group of adults is to realize this is a pre-existing issue. Prior to COVID, I started writing Thrivers when I was looking at the stats that said one in five American kids would suffer from some kind of a mental health disorder. Then came COVID, which is actually the month that uh, the book hit the market. And we're now at one in three with one in three American girls, tween age girls over the last two years, uh, contemplating ending their lives. So it isn't going away. A crisis only amplifies the pre-existing issue. But that alone, we can't all put the finger at COVID. We now look at the culture has really changed. It used to be a little friendlier place where there was more time for play and sandbox, which reduced our children's uh, anxiety. We uh, were a kind of a more calmer group of parents ourselves. And now what we've done is put all the emphasis on the GPA, the test score, and get to Harvard. Uh, mm. Teens are telling us we don't have time for balance. There's just nothing in terms of being able to release my own concerns. And the final thing I think that's happening, you, you, you nailed TikTok. Social media is certainly one piece of this. When you look down, not up, there goes your relationships and your social skills. But we also haven't been teaching our kids coping skills. When you helicopter them and you always try to solve every little problem for them, what you actually do is rob them of the ability to learn resilience. I got this. I can handle it. And that's what our kids really need is that sense of agency. Wow. I mean, when you just shared those stats, you know, it gave me goosebumps yeah. because yeah, me too. You know, it's, it's kind of terrifying, but I'm pretty hopeful that as a society, you know, we can always figure out a way to improve, but we have to understand the problem first and have a realistic approach, you know, realistic outlook on well, it. Well, you've just, you've really nailed it because anytime, I don't care what the, what the issue is, anytime you want to do anything to be counteractive and do something about it, you have to understand a clear why. So when you mm -hmm. begin to look at those dismal stats, that should be the drive to say, okay, something's not right. 
Mm-hmm. Our future of our children's at stake if we don't do something about it. And it doesn't mean we're going to stop helping them be successful in school, but mm-hmm. we've got to add into the plate, I think, some some of the best research that we may be overlooking and isn't in any of our, most of our parenting manuals mm-hmm. on how do you raise a kid who can bounce back, who can handle uncertainty, who can handle unpredictability, who can kind of pivot and reboot and learn how to solve his own problems they're not going to be able to do that at two, but that's mm-hmm. the slow, steady. Yep. That's what we're going to do. And we add those skills to the plate. That's how we're going to help our children, not only now, but the rest of their lives be able to handle, I think, a very uncertain world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like your approach because you can only do so much about like banning TikTok, you know, like, you know, leave that to the government and, you know, it's like they can debate it all day long. And it's more of like a defensive approach, I think. I think a offensive approach is like, hey, how can we control and actually help our teach our kill, uh, children to be more resilient, right? I love that term offensive mm-hmm. because if we always react and we try to uh, intervene, what we've done is lost the preventative motion of looking at what the science says, hey, Maybe what we need to rethink the long-term where we're aiming for in terms of our parenting and our schooling and our communities. Mm -hmm. What does that child need in order to be able to really thrive, not just now, but the rest of their lives? And you can't just blame TikTok. We're raising digital natives. Phones, Mm -hmm. internet, that's going to be part of their worlds, but they need to be able to figure out relationships and social skills because that's a social glue that holds the world together. And we learned something. COVID taught us another thing. Loneliness is now an epidemic with adults Mm. as well as kids. Mm. And it means that uh, we've discovered that relationships are a key to uh, mental health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I remember at a uh, company I worked for in college, you know, it was an internship program, but it's an entrepreneurial internship program Uh where, you know, they taught me how to run my own business, you know, and literally took it from beginning to end, like, you know, getting leads, going door to door, you know, meeting with the homeowner, like um, selling and hiring a team to manage the project. And the theme that they constantly, constantly sort of taught us was relationships are everything. And so I'm so glad you brought that up. Now, let's kind of talk about one of the things you mentioned, which is coping. So Mm -hmm. how, how do you build mentally strong kids? You know, how do you build resilient kids? Well, the first thing is there's a caveat to that. And we now know that you can, that resilience is not locked into your DNA or your zip code or your gender. We now know this is teachable, but environment plays a key role. So the first thing is before we go running out and getting, okay, now I'm going to teach my kid how to cope. We need to look, take a step back and say, what's the classroom look like? What's the school conditions look like? What's the scouting group or that coaching group look like or my own home look like? For instance, what we do know is that child needs a place that's warm and inviting and he feels secure. He's always got that loving adult in his life, that caring champion. Firm and fair is hasn't changed. That's what mm. the parenting plan is always about. And once you have that and you take a look, I think, at our own self, Our children are saying that a lot of times we're getting stressed is that we're mirroring stress to them. So when we teach our kids to cope, maybe there's a, a, there's a win-win. We can teach some of these same strategies and practice them ourselves and they'll mirror down to our kids. So we'll be able to learn to cope and be a little more resilient and handle the stress as well as the kids. 
Hmm. So from what I'm understanding and hearing, it really comes down to being the change you wish to see first, right? Like you yes. yourself as the leader, as the head of household, as the parent, you need to be someone who's resilient, someone who's calm and is not and doesn't get a temper every time something small happens. And then the kids can model that, right? Exactly. And that said, let's eliminate guilt right now because every parent's going to go, oh my gosh, I'm already messed up because we're all stressed. We've gone through two years of real uncertainty. So maybe the first thing we always stop to say is, okay, so am I reacting most of the time or am I responding to my child? And maybe the first real simple step, because what I did is I identified seven strengths that were core to building resilience. And mm -hmm. one of those strengths is self-regulation, which is teachable. So let's just jump to self-regulation a minute because that's teachable. It's not going to be an overnight process and not a lecture. But the first step is tuning into ourselves and being aware of how well am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Also, take a moment to watch your child. Because when you tune into kids, you know, I got three, there's different as night and day. You're not stressed 24 seven. When is your child a little bit more anxious, a little bit more stressed? Is there a time or a day? And if you start charting it and you just tune in, amazing things will happen is you'll begin to see, oh, gee, it's always at Wednesday at three o'clock. What's going on? Oh, that's when my three-year-old seems to be missing his nap, or maybe it's always Thursday morning. And that's the time when my teen goes to school, he always has to take a time test and he's feeling a little anxious about not being confident enough in the time frame. or it's five o'clock around the dinner hour, the witching hour. And that's when we're trying to get the dinner on the table. We've just come back from work. We're absolutely exhausted. And we're writing kind of a little afraid. So first step is identify when you're a little bit more on edge. You can then say, so what am I going to do instead? It's really tough to say I'm going to be less stressed in the moment you're in the meltdown. <laughs> but mm. if you say I'm going to work on taking a slow, deep breath or coming up with a calm down signal in my home, which means Please, I just need a moment. I'm not going to talk. You're not going to talk. I just need to walk away for a minute. That could preserve your relationship. Or mm. maybe a built-in time, I'm going to put snacks down and then I'll go and do the dinner because trying to get too much going at one time can be difficult. The first thing is just identifying where your triggers are and you'll be able to at least begin to help regulate and create a warmer environment. The next thing is you can also teach, uh, I tell kids the best approach I've ever seen for self-regulation I learned on working with army bases and mm. I learned from Navy SEALs the most elite forces in the world who were enduring some pretty tough adversity they say we trained we are now retraining ourselves to get through some really tough times and the first thing we do is identify our triggers just like we talked the second thing it may take a month but the second thing we do is that we identify our stress signs how do we know we're starting to get stressed? And for some kids, it can be you watch their hands go in like this or they get a little clammy. You can see rapid breathing or their little feet go up and down for a little guy. Or you can see teens grinding their teeth or moving back and forth. Or what are yours, mom or dad? If you mm -hmm. identify your stress signs, now you'll be able to do what the SEALs say. Now we immediately tell each other, cool out. You're starting to get stressed. We take one, two breaths. 
It's absolutely remarkable. It's a it's a slow deep breath from deep in your abdomen, like you're riding up an elevator. You keep focusing in on the breath till it comes to the top, and then you take a slow deep exhale. The key is the exhale is always twice as long as the inhale. And what we've discovered is not only is it the fastest, most economical, no cost way to calm down, you can use it any place and any time. It does take a lot of practice. And that's the other thing. We assume that I told my kid how to do that. Why isn't he doing it? Because mm -hmm. you need to exercise whatever skill is your resilient skill until you can do it without the parent. You can use it anytime in any place. And it's one more skill in a in a toolkit. You're helping your child learn to be a little bit more resilient in an uncertain time. Wow. So you mentioned so many things there. I want to unpack each item. Oh, please and do. So, <laughs> so I do want to go into the you know seven traits after, but since yeah. we're on this topic of identifying triggers, identifying, you know, physical stress signs, and then also going into the breathing. How do people identify triggers? You know, because I think it might take a really high level of self-awareness, right? Like to understand what makes me mad, because I feel like a lot of times when we're mad, we don't even know why we're mad. We it's just like in a reactive response, we might not even be aware of it. So how do people build that self-awareness to be to identify their own triggers? You just you just mentioned the key word, self-awareness. The thing is, a lot of this stuff happens so quickly. But as soon as we say in the calm moment, you can never do this thing in the heat of the moment. But in the calm moment, you say, I'm just going to this week or this month, I don't care how long it takes, be a little bit more aware of the time or when I get a little more irritable. Some people track it. You mm. can put it in a calendar. You can put it in a journal. You don't have to have your whole family watching you do it, but you can track <laughs> it. And what you'll begin to see almost always that you may be missing is a pattern. Mm. You're not going to stop every trigger, but you can start to be aware of what the time or the place or the things that are causing you to be a little more irritable. And then the next phase along the way is going to be, so what am I going to do instead to reduce it? But step one is, the awareness in a home, you can also do that as a family. Let's start mm. not like you're doing time out. That isn't time out. This is instead, let's help each other recognize when we get a little more irritable. And mm. you'll have your kids be able to calmly say, um, you can even use that time out signal, which is really helpful because then it'll stop the verbiage, <laughs> which just is a signal you're starting to get that irritable. And mm. that is the godsend because it's actually helping you all to be able to now recognize what your triggers are or your signs are. And then you can do part two, which is figure out, okay, so what's the strategy I'm going to use to calm down? Navy SEALs do one, two breathing, but there's dozens of others. You got to find what works for you. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about identifying stress signs. You know, you mentioned examples for children, like yes. uh, rapid breathing, yes. know, grasping some teens, grinding their teeth. Do you find the same thing with adults as well? Like, are the signs a little different with adults? They're pretty much the same, except you may feel lightheadedness. Hmm. Sometimes you can start to feel your heart go a little faster than normal. You can really feel your pulse rate go if you tune into it. You won't know it until you tune into it. Sometimes you can feel yourself going like this to your teeth or even rocking a little bit. The key is start just 
being aware of it. And it may take you a couple of days to find it. And then all of a sudden it's going to be, ah, that's mm. fine. Then start watching yourself a little more and see, are you doing the same sign? Mm. Usually it's almost the same sign and it's that same, it's called, it's body awareness. Mm -hmm. And you tell kids, it's a wonderful sign that your body is telling you that you're starting to get a little stress. And now's the time you can still catch it because you have cognitive control. Once it starts spiraling, you're out of control. And that's, you know, you watch the kid. I always, this is my prime example on that. You're watching the kid at Walmart having the exorcism and the mother's <laughs> telling the kid, calm down. And you get a little late <laughs> because you can't calm the kid down when he's out of control. Right. Same with us. If mm. you can figure out that's now, okay, this is what my sign looks like. Then mm. you can go and figure out, okay, now how is my new response going to be? What am I going to do to put myself into a little more control over it and give yourself time and space because it takes time to practice. Mm. Wow. That's awesome. So we talked about identifying triggers. We talked about uh, identifying signs and you shared one strategy, which is the one, two breathing. And I remember yeah. learning that in yoga uh, too, yeah, you know, they have different, different uh, breathing perfect. techniques and styles. What are some other sort of strategies besides the one, two breathing that you found to work? It, an interesting thing, if you have time, uh, Emmy Werner's fabulous 40-year study on resilient kids find many of them have hobbies. Mm. They figure out a healthy thing to go to that's near them. Now, you can't do go knitting in the middle of a classroom, but maybe there's a book. Uh, Natalie, who goes to Dalton, she's 14, she says it's Mozart. I said, how the heck did you figure out it was Mozart? She said, my mom was real crafty. She started playing all different kinds of music during COVID over our loudspeaker system. Every time Mozart came in, my whole body kind of just went down. So I loaded my iPad with Mozart. Mm. Different kinds of strategies, you look for them. Many kids say, not all, but some kids say it's a book. I get into a book and it kind of releases me. Uh, a lot of teens say it's drawing or journaling. So you journal it away. You don't have to have anybody see it. You can rip it up when you're done. But if you can write out how you're feeling, it can be a great solution. And a lot of times that's easy because you can pick up your phone and start typing how I'm feeling or you're sitting in a classroom and you can draw out your feeling and nobody needs to know what you're doing. The key is find what works for you. Mm-hmm. We've also discovered during COVID that it was really helpful to have uh, creating calm down spaces in our homes. Mm. For little kids, it could be a pillow and a, and a, or a bean bag, and it could be your teddy bear and your blankie. But mm. teens can also create bean bags and maybe it's Natalie with my iPad filled with music. Or with some kids, it could be a, a glitter jar of calming them down. A space to go, not for time out, but just to reflect and get yourself together when you start to see yourself on edge. And I've seen many families do that. And the parents are going, I've created my own space as well. <laughs> but good for you. But you, it all comes from self-reflection and self-awareness and just going, okay, what do I already have in my home that seems to be my thing to do? You know. We're finding a really disturbing trend as well, and that's college-age kids. Harvard uh, 
university president said, as well as University of Chicago, if the kid doesn't have what to do when things get on edge, like exercise, or maybe it's a start to do just go outside and shoot baskets or nature walks seem to be highly correlated with calming yourself down. But if you're not aware of that, we're finding the number one time a child is most likely to drop out of school is end of freshman year, first semester of college. They don't have that coping strategy. How great to do it now before the kid leaves and do it together as a family. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I I love these strategies and ideas. I think they'll be very helpful for people to really implement their lives. Now, let's talk about these seven traits. So what are the seven traits that built uh, successful kids? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then also, how do you define success? You know, I think that's another important question. Uh, Well, first of all, let's go to success. I define success as a kid who's a thriver. And a thriver to me is a kid who's got a goal or whatever it is, and he just keeps on going towards it. He's not a survivor or a striver. He knows the skills that if something gets in his way, he's going to be able to figure out how to bounce back and keep on going. And that to me is a thriver. When I looked at the new, what you're looking at, one in five American kids prior to COVID, now one in three with mental health disorders. My first thing is to look at, okay, so what does the evidence say? They've already done this with longitudinal scientific studies that helps kids bounce back. And because I'm a teacher, I want to also know the same strengths. Do they also help your kid be a peak performer or be able to handle whatever comes their way and be resilient? And seven kept coming up in no order. And it's a rare person that has all seven. So relax if you don't have all seven, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) figure out which of these you already have and which ones are missing. One of them is strength awareness or knowing what your, your assets are, because you'll go to those when push comes to shove. A big concern we now have is 77% of parents focus on their kids' deficits, not their strengths. Mm. And when we look at Gallup, over a million individuals were studied. When you go out there in the real world, who is the one who really is the healthiest and the happiest? It's when you are engaged in a strength area that is what I love to do. That gives you a sense of flow. So maybe what we should be doing is instead of pushing our kids into law or, hey, electronics, because that's where the high level Mm -hmm. job is, what's your child's strength area? because he's going to be far more likely to be employed and be able to handle life. So that's number one. Empathy relationships is number two. That social connection uh, is highly correlated to not only peak performance, uh, Harvard says is the top employability factor right now, but thrivers is also the ability to keep on going because as the Surgeon General would say, loneliness is now an epidemic and empathy is kind of tanking. Third one we mm-hmm. talked about is self-regulation, the ability to put the, the brakes on impulses so you can think straight and self-regulate. Fourth is integrity. You have a strong moral code or compass. You know what you stand for, which seems to be even more important when you become the middle schooler or the high schooler or the rest of your life. Because when there is a any kind of a, a dissension and you're in a state of should I or shouldn't I, if you already know what you stand for and what your values are, you're going to be able to keep on going. The fifth one I adore, it's curiosity. It's that openness to possibilities Resilience, highly correlated, is the problem solver, which is kind of like what you did. 
you were describing the that internship that you kept doing, kept on going from this to this, to this. So when a, when something came up, you didn't stop. You probably figured out how to pivot or, well, that's what's wrong. Here's what I'll do instead. Mm-hmm. It's coming up with a plan B. That's what a thriver is. Uh, then comes perseverance. You don't give up. You keep on going. Grit is highly correlated to resilience and you're a goal setter. And the final one is optimism or hope. You have that figuring out how to keep your hope alive so that you can reframe something. So it's not, oh, I give up. I'm a cool, I'm a, I'm worthless. Instead is you keep the pessimism at bay and you keep hope alive. So you can teach all of those starting at age two, Mm. but it's never too late. If you're, you know, 93 or 45, (laughs) they're the same ones that matter no matter what. And that's what a thriver is. Hmm. Interesting. So how can you teach these kids at the age of two? You know, ah, <laughs> because at that age, they're not really uh, talking too much, right? And so they might not understand like an activity that you might be teaching a high school kid. So what are some like activities or teachings that you can really good help? Good teachers, good mm-hmm. parents always scaffold every activity. So they may say, I want my kid to persevere. And that's what I'm going to do when he's a teen. I'm going to say, keep on going. What's your goal? When you're two and he falls down, you say, pick yourself up. You did it, sweetie pie. Keep on going. You read him uh, the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. You could say, I think I can. I think I can. You start putting those little ideas in their mind. Hmm. When you see them start to get a little out of control, you tell them, take a breath. Take a breath. I've watched a mom do that with a two and a three-year-old. Absolutely precious. And the three-year-old finally came. My mom keeps telling me, take a breath. <laughs> finally working, but it takes a long time. Right. You have the goal and you're doing all of those. Still the time the child is five or six, when he comes with a problem, you just simply say, what's bugging you? Mm-hmm. What's that problem inside? You're not going to teach him all the goals of, pro- of problem solving, But Myrna Shore's work, fabulous work on research says, if a three and a four-year-old can just say the problem, just getting out of their head makes them feel a whole lot better. And that's the first step to problem solving. Next would be, don't solve the problem for the kids. Say, what's one more thing you could do next time? What's Mm. another little thing you can do? And when they're three and four, you go, okay, now go teach your dog or go teach teddy bear. You role play it with a little guy. And when they role play it, they're more likely to be able to do it without you. So every one of these skills can be taught at a young age. You just scaffold it and keep on going and Hmm. raise a child who's more likely to thrive. Right. Wow. I think that's powerful. So we have these seven uh, traits, and I think that they're all important. Now, if you had to choose, where should people start? Like which ones, you know, like, is yeah. there a sequence that makes it easier? Like if you focus on this uh, skill or this trait, it's actually going to make this one easier and then that will make that one easier. What's, yeah. what's the first skill people should start? Well, there's a couple of points on that one that's wonderful. I would say start with what is already working for you. So if you looked at those seven, instead of going, oh my gosh, my kid really is terrible at perseverance. Don't start at perseverance and start and start it. But maybe he's pretty good at um, curiosity. Start with the curiosity and start helping your child learn that you see that in him, that natural strength. You can also do something else that's wonderful. And that is if you wanted to start with confidence, 
I would say a simple thing is take a three by five card and walk around and start watching your kids a little more without them knowing you're watching them. When are they a little more eager? When do they learn faster? When is there a, a need for, I got to do art, mom, because they love it. What are they passionate about? That's their talent and their strength area. And then you start acknowledging that in the child so that he begins to recognize that's an area of my strength. And I'd also say, and then take a moment to look at the calendar and carve in time for your child to do that particular strength. Usually the kid says, I don't have time to do anything that builds me up because it's all about what's going to look good on a college resume. That strength is really that area that's passionate and critical because it's going to boost your child and the rest will come. One little other thing, you asked which strength matters most. My real aha moment was asking myself the same question until I finally realized there's a multiplier effect to them. Our mistake is seeing resilience as one trait or seeing, oh my gosh, our kids are so stressed, they just need self-confidence. When in reality, if you teach any one strength, then you add another one to it, it, the dog has just joined forces. <laughs> mm -hmm. awesome. If you add another one to it, it becomes a multiplier effect. And any one strength is now amplified by another strength. So that's why the more you build, it'll help strengthen the child's just repertoire. It's kind of like thinking of it, this is a bank account. Mm. But what you're doing is putting in skills or traits that your child's going to use for a rainy day. He may not need these now, but when the adversity and the challenge comes, he needs that set to be able to help him with whatever comes his way. And that's why they're so critical. We don't know what the challenge is going to be or what the adversity is going to come, but it will for our kids. That's why they're going to need a different skill set. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And also, too, I think uh, your dog came in because you heard multiplier effect. You don't want to <laughs> add to the conversation and get exactly <laughs> at me. I'm the hobby. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, do you think these traits are timeless? Do you think these traits are, will they change with the times? Are these traits just important right now? Or let's say 50 years from now, when it, you know, it changes, the world changes. Do you well, think they're still I important? Think 50 years from now, I think they may be a little bit more in different priorities. Mm -hmm. I would say with AI moving in, empathy will absolutely be crucial. So too mm -hmm. would be curiosity and creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are timeless in that when I looked at these, I was looking at studies 50 years ago. What helped homeless people, poverty stricken, um, emotionally, physically, sexually abused kids be able to bounce back? And what we found at that case is that these kept coming up over and over again, not just in one study, but studies that looked at variations of cohorts. Can you imagine studying the same group of kids starting at infancy or toddlerville and keep watching them knowing they hit adversity, but how are they going to do as an adult? And they found that those who endured and did better had better, stronger mental health and were living longer had mm. the same traits that they'd learned. And by the way, it may not have been the parent who taught the kid the strength. We're finding in that there could be the grandmother, a teacher, any kind of a caring champion in a child's life. It could be a coach. 
It could be the neighbor next door, a person who really cares about this child, who refuses to give up on the kid and maybe is modeling those strengths to the child. That caring champion could be an incredible protective buffer. There's three things that are going to help that child. One of them is the people in their lives. And it could be uh, branch out and look at other people who care desperately and are good role models to your child. It could be also the place. We talked about that, the environment. If not the home, is there the school or a club after school? Many of the kids told me, the teens said, my life, they were living in extremely difficult, uh, very violent areas. They said that the Boys and Girls Club was their only savior. That's where they went to, where they could breathe. So are there other places? There's tons of them or coaching situations. And then the third one is protective buffers. That's what we're teaching, the skills. So it's people, places, protective buffers, three Ps. Uh, you can teach the skill, but they still need to have that environment, place, and people in their lives. Hmm. Interesting. People, places, and protective buffers. Mm -hmm. Wow. Awesome. So, you know, one thing I'm kind of uh, cautious about is, you know, I have big goals and big ambitions for my life. And as I get success, more success, and I think as people get more success, they start to live a little bit of a more luxurious life. Mm -hmm. And then if they have kids, you know, sometimes they might spoil the kids, right? And yeah. I guess one of the biggest fears I have is having spoiled and entitled kids. <laughs> so how how do like people that are highly successful, even maybe like wealthy people, how do they prevent their kids from being spoiled and entitled? Oh, I've seen that over and over again. I think the first thing is be aware of the problem. Mm. Second of all, what are your standards in your home? And that is, I, I looked at reading the biographies of the Rockefellers. The kids would come in and want an allowance raise and the father would say, sorry, you're not working hard enough on your chores. <laughs> so mm. it was, it isn't a, it isn't a give out. Uh, mm. Warren Buffett is another great example as a parent who really has strong standards for his kids in terms of it's not about the money, it's the character on how you turn out. So I think it's a, a basic awareness because one of the things that does no service to a child is always giving without having the child realize I can do this on my own. It's amazing how chores mm. are correlated with resilience hmm. because you're now developing responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's not giving out maybe uh, the blank allowance at all times. It's having the child earn it or be responsible for it. I think it's it's back to that great word you used way back when, self-awareness. Mm. So the piece that I always tell parents that we don't do nearly enough is uh, stop right now. Maybe the most important thing you could do just during this podcast is ask yourself, how do I want my kids to turn out? If it's 40 years from now, and I'm now looking at my kids, my little guys, and they're grown up, what do you want to see in your child? And it's a rare parent that says entitlement, <laughs> narcissism, self-absorption. Mm -hmm. Usually it's character traits. I want them to be able to um, enjoy their own lives. I want them to enjoy their own company. I want them to have a solid sense of who they are. I'm not going to give you the answer, but it comes to that moment of really being intentional and thinking that through. Because once you have that intentional piece, what you'll find is dozens of simple little ways to weave it in. Let me give you another example of that. Um, 
while I was writing Thrivers, I was going in and out of schools, interviewing the kids, but also the teachers. And when mm -hmm. I was writing the chapter on integrity, which is kind of like what you're talking about here, I asked the teachers, is there a student who really demonstrates it? And they all said, Mia, done. Go interview the kid. <laughs> who was a teen. She said she's absolutely amazing. She's sharp. But wow, does she have integrity? Find out how she got that way. So I finally pulled her aside and said, OK, Mia, everybody's been asking how you got that integrity. Fess up. She said, it was how I was raised. I said, OK, Mia, <laughs> how were you raised? Oh, this is absolutely classic. It's one of my favorite stories in Thriver. She said, well, it happened when I was about four and my brothers were younger and my mom and dad called us into the family room. There's chart paper and marking pens all over the floor. And my dad said, sit down. We're going to figure out what kind of family we want to be remembered for. That alone is a fabulous question. Mom's going to write down the words and we're just going to brainstorm them all. And then when mom writes one's out of room, we're going to vote. And there's going to be just whatever wins the most votes wins. I said, okay, so what came up? She said, honesty, honesty and integrity. We had responsibility and respect and kindness and all those. And we all chose honesty. So I said, well, Mia, how'd you remember it? <laughs> She said it was impossible not to. My dad immediately put up a big plaque that said, we're the honest duns. My mm -hmm. mother would drop me off every day at school. And remember, Mia, we're the honest duns. She said it so much, we became it. And anytime there was a discipline problem, was that an honest done thing to do? We'd be reading books. Wow, those guys were honest duns. My family said it so much, it was impossible not to become it. Mm. Now, the thing about it is, are we saying what we want our kids to become? Are we mm. modeling it? Are we the example of it? Are we explicit enough in it? And I warn you, character is kind of becoming kind of an eroding concept these mm. days. Examples aren't the best. And all we need to do is really be far more intentional on how we want our kids to turn out. And you'll find dozens of simple little ways to weave in. And Mia would say, that's how you raise the honest kid. Wow. And that kind of reminds me of the, the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective yes. People by Stephen mm -hmm. Covey. Love and, it. Yeah. And he shares that you know, a very similar exercise where you meet as a family and you decide what your, I think he mentioned principles are going uh, to your be mission statement. Mission Didn't statement. That's it. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful. And when Mia was saying that, I'm going, that's exactly what Stephen Covey was saying. Maybe mm -hmm. dad read that book. <laughs> But right. I'm seeing so many parents writing that down and then coming back the following year saying, here's our new family covenant. Here's what we mm. stand for. Right. So when do you think that's the uh, it's the most ideal time? Because, you know, at a certain age, like you want to do that to a child that's one. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what age do you think is most optimal, like the earliest that you can start doing this? I think you can do that even at four and five, because mm. if you come out with a kind family, you can also add new virtues to your list as the kids ah. get older. It doesn't have to be, you know, we could be with a kind family. I say that because my girlfriend has three of the kindest, smartest girls you could possibly imagine. They're grown up. I said, what did you do? She said, oh, we had one rule and we started when the kids were three and it was the two kind rule. We are a kind family. So every day when you leave this house, you are to do and say at least two kind things to someone. And then every day, that was our one little five-minute conversation at dinner. What were the two kind things you said and did? 
And I'm looking at that going, that is a fabulous way to boost empathy because what's now happening is that kindness alone doesn't boost empathy. But if you are kind to somebody else, you see their reaction. And then you begin to see yourself as a kind person. Your image matches your behavior. Kids act how they see themselves to be. So you Mm -hmm. might as well plant in there that you're kind. And it's the other thing that I think is, is the drum roll moment here is that that mother didn't do it once. She did it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. I think our biggest mistake we do is we assume because we told them to do it, they're not exercising and practicing the skill nearly enough mm-hmm. until it's sustained and the kid can do it without us. Right. Yeah, I think that consistency is so important. Mm-hmm. The repetition. It's like putting in reps when you work out. You know, like, and I, I love to work out. I love to weight lift. Yes. So you do it over and over and over until you really have a good grasp of it. And, and that muscle builds and that skill builds on top of itself, right? It, it all takes practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the piece that we miss when it comes to resilience. It's not a lecture. It's not a poster. It's not mm-hmm. a worksheet or a fancy tutor. It's just coming up with what's the one, maybe make it real simple. The one little skill we're going to work on this month to raise thrivers. Maybe it's mm-hmm. one, two breathing, or maybe it's what's one more thing you could do differently next time. Or maybe it's take a slow, deep breath or whatever it could be. Uh, Maybe it's the two kind rule. But if you keep doing it repeatedly, you'll begin to see that your child can do it without you. And that's your moment to say, okay, now I can add another skill. Hmm. That's so powerful. Yeah, I'm really um, excited about all the things you're sharing. You know, you don't know how excited I I am uh, to hear this stuff, you know, because I have kids myself, but also as a parent, you know, like, I feel like that's so needed in this world right now is practicing these seven traits. Yeah. Traits are made up. uh, Now, the other thing we see, we've been talking about skills and traits or strengths. Mm -hmm. So when you look at self-control, that's the strength, but then you look at the skill sets and it could be identifying your triggers, Mm -hmm. learning, which is how, how, why, what, what are my signs when I know my stress is building? What's one way to calm down? Maybe mm-hmm. another skill would be how I can use this each time or just have self-awareness of it. Each one of those strengths is made up of skills. And that's what I was trying to do is once I identified the strengths, what are the skills that are simple and easy and teachable that would maximize the strength if we just kept practicing them? And here's the other thing. If you teach them, the best way to teach any skill to a child is to show it, not tell it. Mm. Our lectures don't work. But if we say, let's go to the park. Oh, look at that little girl over there. You see how she's saying hello? You see how she's making an introduction? Oh, let's try that. Maybe that's a social skill you want for empathy. Once Mm. the child sees it, or you can point it out in a cartoon or while you're watching Sesame Street or while you're watching the evening news. That's a great skill that that kid is learning. Let's be if we can start practicing that in our own home. Hmm. So what are some other mistakes? Because, you know, one thing I'm understanding and I'm hearing is a a mistake that parents might make is they're not being that themselves, you know, and so they need to practice it within themselves instead of just telling their kids they need to be that example are there any other mistakes parents are you making? You mentioned two as as... great ones. One of that is show it, don't lecture it. Mm-hmm. Be the example of it. 
Number three would be make sure you are intentional, that you recognize mm-hmm. what the skill is that your child needs. There's there's dozens of them. Uh, I can give you later on uh, a, a handout that people can just download of the skills or any book would have them. Another one would be not practicing it nearly enough mm-hmm. so that you can see that the child is slowly learning it without you. Another big mistake is not utilizing other people who care desperately about your child. Pass it on to the babysitter, the daycare worker, the nanny, the grandparents, the teacher. Anybody who sees your child even for five minutes once a week can reinforce it with your child. A big one, too, is not reinforcing it the moment the child does it. We are so good to point out when he does it wrong. But how great to say, oh, thank you for being so kind. That was so great how you opened the door for your friend. Oh, did you see how happy he was and the smile she had on her face? What happens is the child is now more likely to do it again because he knows what he did right. Mm-hmm. You And I've seen with as you get your child to be a little older, but some cool things that parents are doing is mobilizing another set of like-minded parents so that maybe you're going to teach yoga to your daughter, but maybe you can get a couple of her friends involved and the other mothers involved, uh, whatever it is. The coolest thing I saw was Hamburg outside New York. The entire communities decided to do this and they decided to do it because most of the kids were playing soccer. So let's all teach it to the coaches and let's find a couple of skills and let's all find the place where all we can reinforce it every Saturday when our kids are on the soccer fields. Find where you want to reinforce this and keep doing it until your child can do it without you. Then you add the next skill and the next skill because thrivers are made, not born. Mm. That's the other big mistake is we assume that's lockstep into DNA or IQ and it's not, it's all acquired skills. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about this and you're sharing a lot of great advice, tips, knowledge, And I feel like most parents don't know this. And it's not like when you become a parent, you're given a manual, right? That's like, hey, this is how to be the best parent that you can be. And then sharing all the things that you've said, like, how do we get more people to know about this? Well, there's lots of possibilities that I've seen. A possibility number one is a book club. You could Mm -hmm. read Thrivers together. There's a book club guide at the back of it. You can uh, take one book or one idea that we just said right now today, and you go, I'm going to try that. Put it on a post-it note. Put it on your mirror. When somebody else in your family sees it, pass it on to them so that it's like-mindedness. I'm seeing other ideas. The most ingenious idea I've ever seen, there's a group of kids outside San Antonio High School kids who are reading my book, Thrivers, which I wrote for adults and parents. They're reading it. And they're part of a student book club. And then once a month, they pass on to their advisors, here's the skills the teens need. This is the stuff that you should be teaching kids. The Mm. fascinating thing is I Zoomed with the kids. And the first question they said is, why did you write this book for parents? You should have written it for us. (laughs) I never thought of it that way. So you find what works for you. Simple ideas, but I I think the other one is passing it on so that maybe it's, uh, you know, you've got a a nanny or a daycare worker, you're passing it on, say, here's the one skill we're working on this week or this month, and you do a 30 second or you video it of here's how it works and you pass it on a 30 second video clip to somebody else who sees your child. 
you'll get more repetition and more reinforcement that way. Hmm. Yeah, I think those are really powerful ideas to share. Now, I can also see in my experience, people, there are people in the world who don't want to change. And if you try to enforce something on them, it might backfire. You know, they might be even more resistant to it. So how do you go about it in a way where someone is able to be open to it and not too aggressive, you know? Number one is don't ram it down their throat. Ask them <laughs> to choose what do you think you need to be a better human being or handle the stress. So with the more the person identifies what they want in, in thrivers, they go to the skill that they think they need. There's actually just a page set that they can actually figure the skill out. Number two is think big, but start small. Don't go saying you're going to do this 30 minutes every day. Hey, how about 30 seconds every day you try this? It's called the foot in the door technique. It's actually a psychological principle that when you mm -hmm. just slowly work your way in, you'll find that, okay, that worked. You'll actually stretch the ideas longer and longer. So you'll get, you'll be practicing it longer. The other one that's fascinating is uh, find a buddy and the mm -hmm. buddy becomes an accountability partner. When you tell your best friend, here's the one thing I'm going to work on. Maybe it's slow, deep breathing. What happens is that that person is a really good buddy. They'll call you up and say, so are you doing it? <laughs> the person mm. becomes your accountability partner. University of California at Santa Cruz did that. And they found that it actually increased people's change techniques. And they actually were more likely to change and get the results because they worked with a buddy as a system. It's finding what works for you is the real answer. Mm. Find what works for you, but don't try to take on too much or it will backfire and you'll never want to do it again. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think those are great ideas. I like the buddy system and also getting your foot in the door. You kind of get small little yeses. Uh, I guess that's how they would say in sales, you know, like small little commitments. Exactly. That's, that's a great thing. analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, uh, one thing I've seen, you know, like there's so many different parenting styles, you know, like I've, I've seen so many different books out there on how to be a good parent. You know, you have to see things like the Montessori method. You see things like uh, there's one recently child led parenting where you're a little bit more soft and gentle. So how do parents kind of figure out which parenting style is the best? because you know, there's so much confusion. Well, the first thing is before you pick up a parenting book, mm -hmm. my strongest recommendation is look to the back and don't read anything about what's in the book. Read who wrote it. Does the person have credentials and has looked at the science because the, there is clear science of what is the most effective way to get results with your child. Mm. This isn't this isn't like fly-by-night stuff. This is like people who have worked on this for years to try to figure out which is the most important. In terms of schooling, uh, there's a lot of different strategies and a lot of different approaches. The best approach is always which fits your child best. Think of your child. Can you see your child in that kind of an environment, whether it's a Waldorf school, Reggio Emilia, Montessori, or you know whatever the approach is? Do you see your child thriving in that particular kind of approach? And is there a clear philosophy? Because a lot of schools these days use the term uh, Montessori. Is that person and are those people who are leading that particular school, 
nothing's more important than the people who are the disseminators of it, the teachers, the coaches. Are you seeing that they're child friendly? Are they warm and inviting? How do they relate to kids? I always tell a parent, uh, go sit, first of all, in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Just watch the parking lot, watch the kids come out. Do they have smiles on their face? Then get there a little earlier. Are you seeing the teacher at the door? Are they greeting the children when they walk in? The strength of the relationship is the first thing that matters. It's always connect, then it's content. So do it that way, the other approach, and you're probably going to get better results with it. The, the one thing that's clear, though, in every bit of research, it's kind of like a landing strip. When you're trying to land at night, you'll want both sets of runway lights on both sides. Firm and fair seems to be the, the, the best approach in terms of parenting. And uh, just ask yourself, are you a balance? Are you a little bit more this way or a little more this way? Just keep even in the score. And that's how you'll get the best results. Hmm. Interesting. What about like mom and dad dynamics? You know, because I, I know that like maybe it's stereotypical, but people say that our society says that the the male is usually the person that's more disciplined, more like hard and firm, while the mother is more soft and nurturing. You know, do you think both parents should be at you know have both traits, or do you think? One should have a little bit more than the other. You know, tell me about that. Well, in terms of who's the firm and who's the fair, I'm seeing it's all over the board because I do too many house visits <laughs> from Dr. Phil to go, well, that's the opposite of what that research is. So the first thing is you're going to differ in your philosophy mm-hmm. with your spouse, your parenting partner. But the more you can agree on the stuff that really, really matters most, come to some agreement you know, put this off to the side of whether the chores or the food or whatever, what matters most to you two? The best Mm -hmm. idea I've ever seen is actually a a mom who said, what we finally got is two copies of Thrivers with post-it notes. We left it in the bathroom. And anytime you find something you like, add a post-it note to the page and I'll look at that one post-it because we were trying too much stuff and it was backfiring. Mm. So it was zeroing in on what do you agree upon? anything. What's the one little thing you agree upon and go that direction because kids see right through us. <laughs> you know, I'm going to mom because she's mm-hmm. easy on that as opposed to dad. Mm-hmm. Align when it comes to the big stuff. That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Michelle. You We're shared so, so much great value and knowledge. I'm really excited for people to hear this. So where can people find you? Oh, my! I'm Michelle Borba. The most important thing you need to know is that I'm a 1L Michelle. So it's mm-hmm. Michelle Borba rhymes with Zorba. So it's michelleborba.com. I'm on Twitter at, at uh, Michelle Borba, Instagram, Dr. Michelle Borba. Thrivers is on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any other place. And there's also, if you go to my website, you can click on a lot of free downloads or video clips if that would help you to find out more. Awesome. Great. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.